Do you desire for God to be glorified in you? With desire, any desire comes duty. Anytime you have a desire for something, that desire creates a certain obligation or duty to achieve that desire. When you set goals, you also have to set the steps in order to reach those goals. I've shared with you all my desire to be more healthy. You know, when you're trying to be more healthy, you set up a regiment, you have to exercise, you have to eat better, cut down on sugar, you know, things like that. Sometimes it gets a little messed up around the holidays, but we're not going to go there. But do you desire, is the question today, do you desire for God to be glorified in you? For the past couple of weeks, Pastor Chris has taken us through Titus, and we've been talking broadly about the responsibilities of church leadership. In order to see that the church grows and develops into a people who are set apart in Christ unto good works, God has given pastors the responsibility of preaching the pure, unadulterated word of God. Titus records that Christ gave himself up for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things are to be spoken of, these things are to be taught with great authority from the shepherds that God has placed over his people. Redeemed from every lawless deed, set apart for Christ, zealous for good deeds, that's the goal. That ought to be the desire of the church. That's Christ's desire for his church. That ought to be the desire of the church. So what is our duty? What is our responsibility? If we know that that is the desire, that is the goal, if we desire for that to happen in us corporately, then what should we be doing individually? That's the question. And that's the subject of Psalm 19. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't. I've been meditating on this psalm for some time, and the more I've studied it, the more it's become clear to me that in this psalm, David is ultimately praying that God would be glorified in him. Just as God is glorified in his creation and his instruction, the word of God, David prays that God would be glorified in his work of redemption in him. As we go through this psalm, we realize that this redeeming, this redemption that David prays for will only result from his careful attention to the word of God. That is his duty. In other words, if you want to have the glory of God shine through you, you need to have the word of God dwell in you. Read Psalm 19 with me this morning. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also 
than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our opportunity to gather together. Thank you for your word, which is true, by which you save us and by which you sanctify us. Indeed, do that work this morning. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. As I mentioned in this psalm, David is ultimately praying that God would be glorified in his redemption. An outline for this psalm is fairly straightforward. Verses 1 through 6, we see the glory of God revealed in his creation. In verses 7 through 11, we see the glory of God revealed in his instruction. And finally, in verses 12 through 14, we see the glory of God revealed in his redemption. The glory of God revealed in his creation, in his instruction, and in his redemption. Let's look at that first point together in verses 1 through 6. We see the glory of God revealed in his creation. Look at the text again with me. Again, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone throughout all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. This is the glory of God revealed in his creation. There's no mistaking that David is in these verses literally looking up at the heavens and musing on the greatness and grandeur of the God who made the heavens. This is, in fact, the proper response to beholding beauty in creation, is it not? Appreciating beauty in any art often prompts this response of appreciation for its creator. I mean, you don't travel to the Louvre in France and see all of those beautiful, priceless works of art and then give thanks to the work of art itself, right? No, you think about the person who made it, the artist, and you give praise to the artist for what they've drawn, what they've made, they've created. You don't listen to Mozart or Beethoven and assume the notes just jumped on the page and arranged themselves in such a lovely manner, right? No, we call it Mozart and Beethoven because Mozart and Beethoven are the ones who arranged it. We know that these things were created by someone because orderliness and beauty is not accidental. Orderliness never comes from disorder. Chaos begets only chaos. The beauty that we see in creation can only come from a beautiful creator. Moreover, musing on the greatness and grandeur of the God who made the heavens is a proper response to seeing beauty in creation because creation itself beckons this sort of response. Again, that's the testimony of verses 1 through 6. As David describes the way that creation reveals the glory of God in these verses, we see creation communicating. We see it communicating consistently, creatively, and comprehensively of the glories of God. 
It is communicating. Look again at verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. First of all, it goes without saying here that David's focus is on creation. He refers to the heavens. We have to understand that the term heavens in the original is in the plural, precisely because there is an Old Testament theology, the idea that there are multiple layers of heaven. There is the heaven that we see above and around us, the atmosphere that we breathe where the birds fly in the sky. There is the heaven where the stars make their abode. We typically refer to this as outer space. And there is the third heaven, which is the abode of God. Paul makes reference to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. These are the heavens. Particularly as we are referencing them in Psalm 19, it seems clear that David is identifying the sky above him without distinction between the inner atmosphere and the outer space. These are the heavens, which heavens receive the declaration that he is about to discuss. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of his hands. Now, the word for telling in the original means to count, number, or take an account of. It is a word that has been used to describe the process of taking a census. When a census is taken, great care is used to ensure that each and every individual family are noted to make sure that accurate numbers are provided to the government. This is the kind of accounting that the heavens does of the glory of God. It is carefully considering and meticulously enumerating the glory of God to us. Now, the glory of God is something that we could probably spend a whole series of sermons fleshing out. We could probably spend hours talking about that this morning. But since I know you guys will probably be changing the uh, terms of the pastoral residency if I spend too long up here this morning, <laughs> we're just going to summarize uh, the glory of God for you this morning. Uh, the word in the original means weightiness. I mentioned that before uh, when we looked at a psalm last time that Hebrew is a very concrete language. The original word in, uh, is kavoth in Hebrew, and that is translated literally something like weightiness or heaviness. Uh, it has the idea of something with a great deal of substance. You know, when someone is very important or maybe they think they're very important and they use their importance to get their way, we say that they're throwing their weight around. That's the idea of kavoth. That's the idea of glory. In other words, the glory of God is all about the honor that is due to him. It's about his worth, his value, his importance. The heavens are taking careful accounting of the weightiness, the honor, the splendor, the value of God. In the second half of verse 1, we're filled in with more detail of this accounting work of the heavens. He says again, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. The word used in the second half of the verse translated declaring means to make conspicuous. In other words, to point something out or to draw attention to it. And the work of his hands fills us in on what aspect of the glory of God we're talking about. What is the glory of God that the heavens makes an account of or draws attention to? It's the work of his hands. It's his work as creator. The heavens want you and I to know that the God of creation is glorious in his creative work. Well, the heavens are consistent in this communication. Verse 2, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. This is another tool in Hebrew poetry called a merism. A merism is a tool that uses two ends of a given spectrum to refer to a whole. Day to day and night to night means all day long, every day, right? 
David uses a similar language in Psalm 1 where he talks about the blessed man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. He doesn't mean every minute of the day. He just means that this is a regular habit of the blessed man. So also for the heavens, they are consistent in their communication of the glory of God, his worth, his value as creator. The heavens are communicating. They are consistent in their communication. They're also creative. Look at verse 3. He says, there is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. This one's not hard to understand, right? The heavens do not have lips. They don't have a tongue. They don't know English. There's no audible voice from the heavens declaring the glory of God. They have to be creative in the way they do it. And we'll get an idea as to what that means as we go forward. The heavens are communicating. They are consistent. They are creative. And they are comprehensive in their communication. Verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. Stop there. Again, the there refers back to the heavens. He says that their line, and in the second half of the verse, he calls it their utterances. In other words, what the heavens are communicating, their line, their utterances, goes through all the earth to the ends of the world. Their communication is comprehensive. It goes everywhere. No one can claim not to have received this communication. Most commentators believe that Paul had this passage in mind when he penned Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. What's Paul's point there? No one can claim that they didn't know that there is a God and that he is a creator and that he is great and awesome and glorious in his creative work. No one can say they don't know that. Just look up at the heavens, Paul says. Look up at the heavens, David says. This is comprehensive communication through all the earth to the ends of the world. Again, their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. That's where we stopped a minute ago. Psalm 19 verse 4 continues. What is the content of that communication? What exactly is being said that tells us of the glory of God? How do we see this thorough, comprehensive declaration of the glory of God in creation? Look again at verse 4 as he continues. In them, in the heavens, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, Hebrew, again, tends to move from a very broad idea to a specific idea. The broad idea here is creation in general. The specific idea is the sun as a part of creation. David is drawing the lens into greater focus. He's moving from the heavens, again, in general, to the sun in particular. We're moving closer to this concrete image that the word of God is using to communicate the spiritual truth. The thing in God's creation in the heavens that communicates consistently, creatively, and comprehensively about the glory of God as creator is the sun. And the question we must ask is, what is it about the sun that communicates? There are two things. First, it's pomp. Look at verse 5. He says, the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. No one looks at the sun without squinting, right? If you do, you won't do it again. The sun at its zenith, with all of its brilliance on display, is unmatched in creation. David recalls the scene of a bridegroom coming out of his chamber to illustrate this. It really doesn't matter if we're talking about the day before 
the wedding or the day after the wedding, the bridegroom is a happy man as he comes out of his chamber, right? He's rejoicing. He comes out beaming. Or also runner preparing to run his race. Not just a runner, but a strong man. Meaning this is the guy that everyone expects to win. This would be like uh, Usain Bolt lining up to race. Pastor Chris and I are lined up next to him. And, uh, you know, the, the, the gun cracks. And Usain is way down the field before we even get off the blocks. And he kind of looks back and gives that grin, you know, like he knows that he's just crushed the competition. This is the strong man. This is the glory of the sun as it runs its course. Verse 6, it's rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. This communicates something about the greatness of the glory of God. One of my favorite passages is found in the book of Timothy. As a young pastor myself, I would often go to the pastoral epistles and to Timothy in particular because Timothy was a young pastor and Paul often wrote in such a way to bring encouragement to him. And I often felt like he was speaking directly to me. In 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul urges Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. And in verses 13 and 14, he charges Timothy before God to keep the commandment without stain or reproach. Moreover, he says to Timothy that this God before whom he is charged is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, and this is what does it for me, and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. He said, it is to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He says, I charge you, Timothy, before the God before whom no man can stand, he has such glory, such weightiness, such splendor, that it shines from him to the degree that it is said that he dwells in an unapproachable light. Can you imagine what that looks like? I mean, I feel like I'm not even worthy to read that off of the pages of Scripture. God dwells in an unapproachable light. Isaiah saw this, and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am ruined. I ought to be accursed, because mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. You know, there's going to come a day when the sun, as we know it, will be done away with, and where all we will have and all we will need is the glory of God, the glory of God to shine for us. Revelation 22, 5, and there will be no longer any night, and they will not have need of a light of lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. That day is coming. What a day that's going to be. It is no wonder, though, that men can find no greater way to describe the glory of God than the brilliance of a bright, shining light. And what greater bright shining light in creation is there to compare besides the sun. Well, the comprehensive communication of the sun is more than just the brilliance of its light and its pomp as it takes its victory lap around the globe. It is in the provision that the sun, verse 6 again, its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And then he says at the end there, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The sun would really fail to have any immediate practical benefit for us if it were not for the fact that it provides us with light and heat. Really, no life on earth would be possible if, if we were not in the exact place in the solar system that we are in. Did you guys know that? If, we were, if the earth was one degree further away from the sun, we would, we would freeze. If it was one degree closer to the sun, we would melt. All life on earth would cease to exist. 
So the fact that the matter is that we are in the perfect orbit around the sun to take advantage of its life-giving heat, both for humanity as well as for the rest of life on earth to thrive. He says there is nothing hidden from its heat. From one end of the planet to the other end, the sun spreads its, its light over the land. It is as a bridegroom, it rejoices as a triumphant runner to provide its heat to every inhabitant on God's green earth. It is this, as if creation is calling out through the sun, through its brilliance, through its brightness, through its gloriousness, through its life-giving heat, that our creator God is glorious. This is the message of the sun. What about you? Do you desire to glorify God in that way? And we see the glory of God revealed in his creation. We also see the glory of God revealed in his instruction. Look at verses 7 through 11. Read them with me. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. In this section, David gives us six titles for the word of God, seven qualities of the word of God, and eight effects of the word of God. Six titles, seven qualities, and eight effects. And it'll be clear as we go through how these things bring glory to God. The six titles are fairly straightforward. I won't spend a great deal of time on each. I believe they're being used synonymously rather than independently. In verse 7, he calls it the law of the Lord and the testimony of the Lord. In verse 8, the precepts of the Lord and the commandment of the Lord. In verse 9, we see the fear of the Lord and the judgments of the Lord. These all refer to the word of God, to his instruction to us. It is clear that these are intended to refer to the word of God as instruction, as he indicates in verse 11, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The word of God is intended to be instructive for us. His law, his testimony, his precepts, his commandments, those things which move to fear, his judgments are not intended to be joy stealers. The word of God is not intended to rob us of something greater. We reject the notion of the lie that the serpent shared first with Eve and with the rest of humanity since that the commandment of God is intended to keep us from something more valuable. Rather, his commands are intended to instruct, to provide knowledge, to warn, and to lead to reward. He also gives us seven qualities and eight effects of the word of God. These qualities and effects are meant to be understood together, so we'll look at them together. Look at the first and second qualities and effects in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word of God is perfect. This means that the word of God is complete. It is full. It is whole. There's nothing missing from it. For that reason, he tells us in the second half of the verse that it is sure. Since the word of God is complete, lacking nothing, it gives surety to those who live by it. That it is sure means that it is stable. It is able to provide support. It is a sure foundation. We sing that, right? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in what? In his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, right? The word of God is perfect. It is sure precisely because it comes from the perfect, sure foundation who is God himself. 
He is the rock upon whom all who desire safety would do well to fall upon. The effects of the effects complementing these qualities in verse 7 are that this perfect and sure word of God restores the soul, and in the second half it makes wise the simple. Well, what does it mean that he restores the soul? The word for restore is actually the word that we translate return or turn back. In other words, it causes the soul to return to its former strength, to be refreshed. This is the same sort of restoring that's mentioned in Psalm 23, verse 3. He restores my soul. If we add the phrase in the second half of the verse, it gives us a better picture. It makes wise the simple. This is not someone who is simple-minded per se, but rather someone who's simply lacking wisdom in a particular area. We all know that when we're lacking wisdom, when there's a decision that needs to be made, something that needs to be figured out, and we're lacking wisdom to make the decision to move forward, sometimes we grow weary. Sometimes we faint. What is the message here? It is that the word of God is that which provides wisdom that we need to make the major decisions in life that tend to weary our souls. The word of God is perfect. It is complete. It is whole. It is sound. It is fully sufficient. Thus, it alone is that which can provide surety, a stable foundation to glean the wisdom that we need to move forward to the end that our souls are refreshed and strengthened. Now, does this mean that the Bible will have the answer to every individual question that we ask in life? Who should I marry? Should I marry Bob or should I marry George? What job should I take? Should I go here or should I go there? How can I gain favor in order to get that nice promotion at work? Certainly not. But it will give you principles to help make those decisions. Whom should I marry? Well, the word of God said that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Anyone I consider marrying should be pursuing that. Right? That should be true of them already. The word of God says two cannot walk together unless they are agreed. Unless I'm willing to give up my career aspirations, I need to pursue someone who's going in the same direction as me. Very simple commands. Love one another. Forgive one another. Let no unwholesome word proceed forth from your mouth. These things should be true of the person I want to connect with, I want to spend the rest of my life with. Those are principles that you can use to answer the questions that you have in life. There is sufficient wisdom in the word of God for all of life's questions, all of life's problems. Next, the third and fourth qualities and effects in verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is sure, enlightening the eyes. That the word of God is right means that it is straight. It is not crooked. It is not perverse. It will not lead you astray. In the second half of the verse, it is said to be pure. That means that it is clear of anything that would taint or blemish. David says it this way in Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. They're pure The whole picture is that with God, there's no shadow of turning with him. His words are straight. They never deviate from course. They are pure, clean, and clear in the direction that they give. The effect of his word in the life of his servant is that they rejoice the heart and enlighten the eyes. Now look at those two in reverse to give the fuller picture. To say that the eyes are enlightened are just what you would expect. The eyes are given clarity. The straight and narrow, pure, untarnished word of God enlightens the eyes. We memorize the Psalm 119.105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Moreover, to be enlightened, to be led down the paths of righteousness, as David says in Psalm 23, 
To be led down the narrow gate, as Jesus says in Matthew 7, ultimately brings joy to the heart. We often think that we have to abandon the word of God and the ways of God to have fun. We see the wicked indulging in their wickedness, seeming to have their best life now, doing whatever they want, living as if God does not exist. And yet we know their end. We talked about that in Psalm 73, right? We know what's going to come to them. Not only do we know what's going to come to them in the end, but we also see the confusion created by the effects of their pursuits today. They're not pursuing the word of God, the clear, enlightening truth of God. They're pursuing their own way. My wife and I were listening to a debriefing a couple of days ago. It's a radio broadcast by uh, Dr. Al Mohler. And one of the headlines that he mentioned has to do with a six-year-old boy who's stuck in the midst of a custody battle. And this six-year-old boy has a, mother on, uh, a father on the one hand, who when he goes to visit with the father, he's you know, just living life like a normal little boy. He's enjoying life. He's having fun. But whenever he goes to the mother's house, the mother dresses him up like a little girl. And she has taken him to this uh, gender therapist, and the gender therapist has given him the diagnosis that he has gender dysphoria. And so the, the, the point of her fight in the custody battle is that the husband is prohibiting this. And so she's trying to use that because that is in vogue today. That whole discussion is in vogue today to gain custody of this little boy. And they're fighting and they're arguing back and forth with a six-year-old little boy. Part of Dr. Moeller's point was that the instigation of all of this for the child was divorce. It was the breakup of the family. He said, in effect, the moment we swerve from the God-ordained roles in the family... The moment we ignore the Lord's instruction for the family, we open ourselves up from parents to children to all sorts of wickedness and confusion. Absolute confusion. Chaos. I mean, think about what's going to happen with this little boy as the years continue. Listen, if you desire a life characterized by clarity and the joy that comes from a life where there is no shadows, there is no skeletons in the closet, no confusion, no chaos... The word of God is the only standard to live by. Fifth and sixth qualities and effects in verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. The word of God is clean and true. The word for clean here is different from the word used in a previous verse, pure. They sound similar in English, but this word in verse 9 suggests something that is ceremonially clean or perhaps in the context ethically clean. More than a sense of clarity from the previous verse, this is pure or clean in a sense that it's free from the taint of sin. You get that sense from its companion word, true. I've already mentioned the biblical emphasis on light as it relates to God. A familiar passage in the New Testament is John's proclamation in chapter 1, verse 1, or in 1 John chapter 1, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There's no darkness, no stain of sin, no sense of impropriety. All of his words and all of his ways are good and right and true. The word of God is true. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Jesus had already answered that in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed to the Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The effects of this sinless, truthful word of God is that it endures forever and is righteous altogether. Every word of God is true. Every word of God is pure and upright. As a result, every word of God will come to pass. There is not a jot or tittle, as Jesus said, that will fail from the infallible word of God. It is true. It is trustworthy. It is dependable. 
You remember what Moses said after God had pronounced judgment on him for his anger in the wilderness? God had just spoken to Moses and indicated to him that he would not enter the promised land for his disobedience. The word of God was given and settled. He did not complain. He did not gripe. Instead, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses said to the people of God, calling heaven and earth as his witnesses, I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. You see, we may say that we believe that God is sinless. We say that we believe the word of God is true. We say that we believe the word of God endures forever and that he is righteous altogether until he brings something into our lives that we don't agree with. Then we start to doubt God. Then we start to wonder if he really knows what I need or what is best for me. Is he really in control of this? Certainly I don't deserve this, right? He should know that. Maybe he just doesn't know. Maybe he just doesn't understand. No one knows. No one understands me. No one understands my problems. Listen, if there's anything that every believer must be assured of, it is that God is in control of all things. It is that he is sovereign over your life. He does bring difficulty and distress into your life. And he is still holy. He is still true. His word and his promises are still sure. They will still come to pass. You can count on that. Moses said of the God who refused him entrance into the promised land that he was made to desire and pursue through much difficulty over the course of 80 years. He said, you are not going in because you sinned. Moses said of him, the rock, his work is perfect. All of his ways are just. He is a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Do you believe that? As you come before his truths and his promises in the midst of your sorrows, you need to choose to believe that. The seventh quality is found in verse 10. <clears throat> All of what he said up to this point, that the word of God is perfect, it is whole, lacking nothing, leads to surety. It is straight and clear, leading to joy, and that... It is holy and true, enduring forever and righteous altogether. All these things bring him to the point of exclaiming the pure desirableness of the word of God. He says again, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. If there are two things that we as humanity struggle with the most, it is our lust for material possessions and our lust to have our physical appetites satisfied. David addresses both of those things here. He says, possessing the purest form of gold that the world can afford, which gold would allow me to purchase and possess anything my heart desires, means absolutely nothing in comparison to the word of God. Having what amounts to one of the most pleasant experiences to my physical senses, to taste the sweetest honey. And you could probably insert anything there. I don't know what it is that does it for you. Chocolate. He says, to taste the sweetest honey is nothing in comparison to the taste of the word of God. David is saying here that you would have to be a complete pagan, more than a pagan, a stark raving lunatic to pass up on the treasure that we have in the word of God. In David's mind, there's nothing greater than the word of God, nothing more valuable. 
seventh and eighth effects in verse 11. He says, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. He says, by them and in keeping them and keeping the word, abiding by the word of God, as sweet as it is to the taste, and ultimately, it is ultimately so great because by the word of God, God instructs his people. He brings his people into his counsel. He warns them of danger. He leads them to his reward. The word of God is God's grace, his unmerited favor upon his people to bring them into greater fellowship. In this psalm, the word of God is placed front and center as that which is the catalyst for the full and complete redemption of his people. We know that it is the word of God that brings about the new birth in us. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23, we were not redeemed with perishable things, but through the living and enduring word of God. This is the word that was preached to us. This is the word that we heard. This is the word that God has given us the faith to believe, to understand, to know. And he's caused us to be born again through it. We know that it is the word of God that strengthens us, that nourishes us. First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Peter says, Long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. Do you want to learn of the glory of God? Do you want to taste of the glory of God? Do you want to know the full redemption of God? You will find it in no other place than his word. This is the word of God crying out now. Taste and see that the Lord is good and that the Lord is glorious. Do you believe that? Let me ask you this now. How much time do you set aside for the word of God in your day? I'm not just talking about when you come to church on Sunday morning or if you make it out to Sunday school before the main service or if you make it out to Bible study on Wednesday. I'm asking each of you if you believe that the word of God is the tool that God has given to bring us closer to himself, closer to the image of being a people set apart and zealous for good deeds, then how well do you prioritize the word of God in your day? There are 168 hours in a week. At least that's what Google said. We all have some responsibilities and things that we will naturally do during the week. Let's say you work a 40-hour-per-week job. That leaves 128 hours. Let's say you get the preferred seven hours per night of sleep. That leaves 93 hours per week. Let's say you spend one hour eating each meal. Three meals per day. That's 21 hours per week. That leaves 72 hours per week. You've worked, you've slept, you've eaten, and you still have 72 hours per week, which is roughly 10 hours per day, free. How much time do you spend prioritizing the word of God with that 10 hours per day? I know that everyone's schedule is not that straightforward. I know that there are things that come up daily and during the week, but the reality is that if you believe that the word of God is so important, the issue should never be that you don't have enough time to get into the word of God. The issue should be that you don't have You don't have enough time to get into the word of God, right? Like you can't get into it enough. The busier you are, the more complex your schedule is, the harder things are in life, the more you need to spend with this. The more you need that perfect, clear, truthful, restoring, enlightening, righteous word of God. Again, do you desire for God to be glorified in you? Then how is your attentiveness to the word of God? In verses 1 through 6, we saw that God is glorified in his creation. 7 through 11, we saw God glorified in his instruction in our last section. I'll try to move quickly through this. We see 
In verses 12 through 14, God glorified in his redemption. Verses 12 through 14, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So David has just surveyed the scene. He has just observed creation and sees that God has so designed creation that it can't help but to bring glory to him. The sun in the heavens spews forth his glory in a way that nothing else in the created order can. It touches all of creation, both with its splendor as well as its provision of heat. Likewise, the word of God reveals his glory. His perfection shine forth from the word of God like no other. And just as the sun radiates all of its glory, such that there is nothing in the natural order hidden from its heat, Likewise, the word of God radiates the glory of God so that there's nothing in the recreation of God, nothing in the servant of God, hidden from its sanctifying heat. David says, your creation and your instruction pour forth your praise. I know that I am far from it, but I want that to be true of me as well. So in this last section, he prays. He prays that all of what was indicated above concerning the effects of the word of God will be true of him. You know that as King, Dave, as King, David would have owned his own copy of the word of God. In Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 and 19, Moses instructed concerning the king. He says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Be careful. Be carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. That was a charge that Moses gave in the law for each and every king that would sit on the throne in Israel. As we read through the Psalms, it is clear that David was obedient to this statute. He gave regular attention to the word of God as he was made to make his own copy of it before the Levitical priests and to read it all the days of his life. You can just read Psalm 1. That's a good indication as to what David thought about the word of God. He says, the man who meditates in the law of the Lord day and night is blessed. He is blessed of the Lord. He is made righteous by God, and the Lord upholds his way. In our text, David prays that as he comes before the word of God, that God would bring full redemption in his life. I'm using redemption in a broad sense that he would both save and sanctify. And I'm using save in a sense of deliver. He would deliver him. David has already been regenerated at this point, but he's asking for deliverance from certain sins in his life. He prays in verse 12 to be saved from hidden sins. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Lord, by the power of your word, help me to see the sins that I haven't even seen in my life. I don't even know about yet and cleanse me from those things. Often we think that spiritual growth is about sinning less. To a certain degree, that is true. But the older I get in the Lord, the more I realize that spiritual growth is a process of coming before the word of God and being made to see your sin from God's perspective, which means that you're actually going to see more of your sin, not less. You're going to see more of those hidden areas, those dark areas, those, those closet areas that you didn't know were there before. As you come before the word of God and you get to know his way, his will. And David prays, cleanse me of these things. He knows that he needs the Lord's pardon and inward cleansing. He says, acquit me of these things. Cleanse me from these things. That's his prayer, his desire. Second, he prays 
to be saved from haughty sins, high-minded sins. Verse 13, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Lord, by the power of your word, help me to avoid a high-minded sin. Help me to avoid pride. Help me to avoid intentionally transgressing your word in a moment of pride and weakness. And we know that we're all susceptible to this. This is David being honest and saying, Lord, I know that this is not beyond me, that I have weaknesses and I could fall at any moment. Keep me back from these things. Don't let these things rule over me, I pray. He knows that he needs the Lord's protection from these things. One commentator said that all the discoveries of sin made to us by the law should drive us to the throne of grace. It should drive us to the throne of grace. Moreover, he prays that he would be sanctified. Verse 13, then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. That is his goal. That's his desire to be blameless before the Lord. Doesn't really matter what other people think about him. He wants to be blameless in the sight of God. And what's an indication that these things are true? What will show forth that the sanctifying work of God is going forward? Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David began this psalm with an observation about the words poured forth from heaven concerning the glory of God. And as he closes, he prays that God would make it so that his words would likewise bring glory to him. In other words, you will know the sanctifying work of God in your life when the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart are pleasing to him. This is a tangible way of measuring the work of God in your life. And of course, in context, you measure what is pleasing to him by his word. Some of us simply do not do a good job of controlling our tongue. Gossip, slander, backbiting, grumbling, complaining, being argumentative, and generally unwholesome speech, as it says in Ephesians 4, is an indication that we still need the sanctifying heat of the word of God in our lives. Others may do a great job of controlling the tongue outwardly, but I think that all of us would agree that we often struggle, even those of us who seem the most holy, we often struggle with the meditation of our hearts. I mean, the reality is that gossip, slander, backbiting, grumbling, complaining, argumentativeness, and even unwholesome speech starts where? It starts in the heart. That's where it comes from. Even if others do not hear it, God hears and knows. We often do a better job of identifying this heart issue in the lives of others, particularly when their sin affects us than we do our own selves. As I was preparing for this this week, I realized that one of the issues that I struggle with the most is when I'm driving. And um, I've gotten better, I think. At least from my perspective, I've gotten better. I don't know what the Lord would say, but uh, I tend to grumble quite a bit in my heart about other drivers on the road. I'm just being honest with you guys. And I was very convicted as I was reading through this. Because we, we, we often put forward a good face with each other when we come in and we sit down next to each other and we're dressed up all nice. And we smile nice to each other, we hug each other, we love on each other. But if, if we knew what was going on in each other's hearts, I think we would probably be running to the hills right now. <laughs> but the good thing is that God knows and he has not done away with you yet. He ought to, but he hasn't. 
The reason why he hasn't is because this is the whole reason why his son came to die. To redeem us from each one of these lawless, wicked thoughts that we have in our hearts daily. And his salvation is complete. God has done this for us. If you desire for the glory of God to shine in you, then you must let the word of God dwell in you. Pursue the word of God. Indulge in the word of God. Delight in the word of God. Be the Psalm 1 man or woman who meditates in the word of God day and night. That is our duty. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight as you pursue the word of God. Pray for this. As you do this, your redeemed life, your redeemed words, your redeemed heart will be the thing that cries out to all of creation that our God is glorious. And David has given us a clear picture of the glory of God in creation, the glory of God in his instruction, and the example of pursuing and praying for the glory of God to be shown in his personal redemption. Perhaps you're a little discouraged this morning because you know that you have not made the word of God a priority. I would ask you, first of all, what is more worth your time? What are you doing with that 10 plus hours that you have every single day? That's more worth it than this. Do your duty. Pursue his word. Make that your prayer today. He is our rock and our redeemer. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we need his redeeming work daily. He offers it to us through the word. Those of you who do prioritize the word, excel in that. Keep watch over yourselves. Pray that the Lord would help you to abide in his word so that as you go forward out of the meditations of your heart, your words would bring glory to him. And as we close, I leave you with the words of the one who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every one of those lawless deeds and to make us zealous for good deeds. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. He says, just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for our time together around your word. Thank you for your word, which is true, which does indeed sanctify us. Thank you that we can see your glory shining forth from your creation, that we can see your glory shining forth in your instruction. Lord, make it so that your glory shines forth through your servants as you redeem us. Through your holy and righteous word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.